Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. As you know, StoryCorps promotes the day after Thanksgiving as a national day of listening, saying that listening, sharing, and recording stories of family members and friends is the least expensive but most meaningful gift you can give this holiday season. Well, uh, Access Utah has promoted this concept for a few years now, and uh, today we'll continue the tradition. We're going to invite you to share your story. Uh, you might think that your uh, your story, your family's story, is insignificant. We're, we're pushing back on that concept to today. Every story is important. We'd love to have you share your maybe holiday traditions or uh, an interesting story from your family. And we definitely encourage you to uh, take this time when you're together with friends and family to uh, pull out a recorder. It's very easy these days. Uh, pull out your iPhone and record your family member. Our guests in studio include USU Folklife Archives curator Randy Williams. She recently completed an audio collection, The Central Utah Project, capturing Utah's share of the Colorado River. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Tom. We'll hear about this project. we got some audio uh, from, from the project as, as well. Uh, also with us is USU professor of anthropology and affiliate professor of religious studies, Bonnie Glass-Coffin. Uh, she's uh, recently recorded stories of religious diversity as part of USU's Interfaith Initiative. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Great to be here. And uh, oh, a couple of months ago, we talked about the Interfaith Initiative, right? Yes, we did. Um, so you've you've been doing some recording. We'll hear some examples uh, there as as well. Uh, let me start with you, uh, Randy Williams. You uh, you do a lot of this, you do a lot of recording. Right. You go out and record people's uh, stories, maybe just generally talk about the, uh, the the power of that, power of recording uh, people, the power of listening. Well, I think the power of recording people um, helps all of us ground ourselves in, our hum- in humanity, helps us understand somebody outside our own world that we live in, and helps us get a sense of um, perspective. And at Utah State, in special collections in the library, the America's Art Library, we've been doing that for about 15 years as a concerted effort. Certainly others have done it and donated their collections. But we've been trying to make sure the voices of especially underserved, underrepresented groups make their way to the library, and but other groups as well, you know, making sure that we um, hear the voices of the people. And the beauty, I think, of oral history, whether it's interviewing your family member or somebody that is new to you, is just the fact that you learn something from someone else's perspective. You're not... Um, it's primary source documentation if you're a researcher. It is the, the heart of somebody. So they're going to synthesize. You can't um, tell your whole story in an hour interview or two-hour interview. But the things that are most important usually bubble up, and that's what people share. And, and it's great to be able to hear that. And as a researcher, it's a wonderful information. But as a person doing the interview, it's a, a beautiful way to have an exchange and learn to listen better, I mm-hmm. think. Buddy Glass Coffin, uh, this interfaith initiative, fairly new on the USU campus, uh, a lot of this is about listening. Yes, it is. A lot of it is about listening, Tom, and learning how to listen with appreciation and with respect, even if you have a faith commitment or a commitment to no faith that is very different than your peers, than your neighbors. Learning how to listen appreciatively to others, with respect to others, um, is really at the core of being able to celebrate interfaith diversity and come to a place where we can learn how to build relationships with one another in order to be able to act 
in service to the common good. But it all starts with being able to voice your stories, and being able to voice your stories means having a safe place where you can trust that other people are listening carefully with attention and they're not going to judge you. And so a big part of what we do with the USU Interfaith Initiative is to train students and train everybody who's interested in how we can learn to listen appreciatively, engage in dialogue rather than in debate. Uh, I imagine that would be especially important in interfaith. Uh, those conversations can get loaded. Religion is one of the topics you're not supposed to discuss in polite company, right? That's correct. Religion yeah. is one of those com- uh, you know one of those topics, and it's one of the things that is really core and central to you know personal identity. As Randy was saying a minute ago, people uh, sharing who they are means they're going to share the core values that they hold the most. And for this country that is the most religious country on earth, as well as the most religiously diverse country on earth, if we can't talk about religion, we can't really share our stories in the way that will really um, help honor our deepest selves. Mm. We're uh, soliciting your story. You can call 1-800-826-1495. We're opening the phone lines now, 1-800-826-1495. Could be a holiday story. We'd love to have your holiday tradition. Uh, so that is what we're talking about today. It's the National Day of Listening, the day after Thanksgiving. We'll have a special on, so we won't be on, so we're, we're uh, promoting that uh, today. Uh, it's a nice thing, I think, that StoryCorps uh, does. Uh, by the way, uh, Randy Williams, you, you do a lot of recording. I'm putting you on the spot here uh, of a lot of people. Do you, do you record your family? What do you? I have. Uh, I've recorded okay. my family. I've recorded um, my father. Uh, I've recorded a lot of family members about a a coming to the United States story and going back to religion. It was a great great grandmother who um, joined the the Mormon Church and came to the United States from Wales alone as a young twenty something young woman in 1880s um, and um, talked to a lot of different family members about her story. But um, my mother-in-law and her brother, some really sweet experiences, you know, that listening and, and the exchange that goes on between the interviewer and the interviewee is really sweet and special. And I really highly encourage people to, to take this day of listening to heart and interview somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes people can get self-conscious. I know some of my sisters have uh, just uh, brought a recorder and, and, you know, just turn it on, put it on the table. And I've noticed after a while my parents uh, just forgot about it. Exactly. And and I've, I've found that's a nice way to... You know, I think the putting it on the table, you know, first of announcing that you're going to be doing this so people have that option to opt out. But most often in family situations, if somebody is a little apprehensive, within minutes, they're so wrapped up in re, you know, retelling something, reliving something, that the recorder is totally forgotten. I'm, uh, I'm noticing on the, by the way, uh, StoryCorps uh, has a website, storycore.org. Uh, this is, I'm looking at DIY, doityourself.storycore.org. They have some great questions. What makes us such great friends is one of them. What were your parents like? One that I like is, when did you know that your significant other was the one? Um, what was your childhood like? Did you serve in the military? When did you first fall in love? These are some great questions. Right. And uh, that's nice to have. StoryCorps, as well as other um, online sources that help you come up with those questions. But I have felt like, and I know Bonnie would agree, when you start the interview process, you have a set 
um, five or ten questions. But then you go off on these beautiful tangents. And all of a sudden, you're in a place that you had no clue as the interviewer that you were going to end up. And the interviewee is reliving these, you know, interesting moments in their life. I have to say, sometimes you could ask a person a question that could take them down a uh, a road that could be, you know, remembering something distressful and sad. And so that's something to be thinking about when you embark on these kinds of endeavors, to, to be really in the moment with that person, being willing to say, Let's, should we t- turn the recorder off? You know, is this upsetting you? How can I best help you? And sometimes folks want to do that, turn it off. Some folks want to, no, I really want you to know this. And so being in that moment, and I think one of the key things I can say, having done hundreds of interviews, is even though you are doing a lot of things, you've got the headphones on like you do right now, you're listening and you're preparing to say the next question, you really need to be in that moment with that person so they feel like that genuine exchange. And that really is the beauty. The tape, the, the, um, the CD, whatever you prepare, the transcript, those are all amazing things to have for later. But that moment right with you and that person or those persons, because you may be interviewing your mom or dad or family members, that's the the sweet. That's it, the sweet. It really thing. is, isn't it? Yeah. I, I of course I deal with this professionally. Um, for example, I go back to my very first interviews, and it's it's painful. It's, it's just <laughs> been, because I'm I not. Hear I'm not listening. I am not listening. Right. I hear you. I am waiting for my next question that right. I have prepared, and I hear people say interesting things, and I did not follow up. Right. There. It. You have to practice it, and then I have to say, and my wife will back this up. I don't practice this as well as I should in, in private life either. I'm formulating my next thought or whatever it is, you know, and sometimes I have to step back and say, okay, just listen. It's hard. Well, I think it's hard for all of us, and, and we all need practice. And one of the things that I'm doing right now is I'm teaching, again, my course on shamanism, Introduction to Shamanism, and it's an experiential course. And one of the things that we spend a lot of time on with students is uh, learning techniques and tools that will allow us to sort of quiet what we call the chatter of the monkey mind, you know, that what's my next question going to be or, you know, what's it like outside or whatever, to just learn how to center ourselves, take deep breaths or meditate or, you know, whatever it takes, be just express gratitude for the moment so that we can be in that sacred moment present with the person in order to listen because it's in that moment of the present as Randy so beautifully articulated that you know the magic occurs that's where the deep connection occurs I want to ask you about interfaith we've talked about how these can be very loaded conversations and we have to have a uh, safe space I imagine a lot of the students that come in uh, I don't know you'd have to practice this as we've said it doesn't come naturally well, that's right. And certainly one of the things we always talk about is um, before we have any kind of a dialogue, any kind of a training, any kind of a classroom presentation, any kind of a speed faith thing, which is something that we started doing on campus where students can share in a safe environment, we talk about safe space guidelines. And there's a few key guidelines that really help us to come into that place where we can feel safe and where we um, know we are safe. And one of those is to always use I statements, which makes sense when you're telling stories about yourself. It's about I. You're not trying to represent an entire group or an entire religious tradition, and you're not trying to convert anyone, and you're not trying to, um, uh, you know, uh, change the world. You're just talking about your own experience. And so we encourage people to use I statements. We encourage people to recognize that when we do engage with others, it's in a spirit of dialogue. It's in a spirit of learning.
learning and wanting to gain knowledge. It's not in the place of, you know, trying to have a debate about who's right and who's wrong. And it's about appreciation and respect. And again, I think the best way to develop that appreciation and respect, which creates tremendous bridges in order to be able to do great things together, because you do feel safe doing great things together. And the way to create those bridges of appreciation and respect is to be able to listen deeply. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll hear the first of uh, our audio clips. Uh, We'll start with uh, the Interfaith Initiative. Uh, We also have some audio from the Utah Water Project. Randy Williams has been uh, out in mostly the Uinta Basin. I have been all over the state. state. I've actually been around the country. I've been out to D.C. I've been over to Denver. So... I picked up in the Uma Basin because that's where I'm from. I that's guess. right, but yeah. I did do I did do a lot of interviewing out there. All right, and we do have you have a, a portion of an interview we'll play from with Irene Kutch, who is with the U Tribe. Wonderful. Uh, so we'll hear some audio, and uh, we'd love to hear your story as well at one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. UPRAccess at gmail.com is the email. We're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio, and you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. A lot of places to share these days. Um, we're jumping on board StoryCorps' wonderful project. They promote the day after Thanksgiving as a national day of listening. They say that listening, sharing, and recording stories of family members and friends on that day after Thanksgiving is the least expensive but most meaningful gift you can give this holiday season. We heartily agree, and we're supporting that on the program today. More following the news. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Alpha Tau Omega, presenting Starry Night, a Christmas concert to benefit racing for orphans with Down syndrome. Friday and Saturday, December 5th and 6th in the USU Performance Hall from 7 to 9 p.m. Details at 435-757-3353. Senegal is the source of much of West Africa's most melodic and inspired music. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll explore some of the rich musical traditions and hear contemporary voices. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for Senegal, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. As you know, StoryCorps promotes the day after Thanksgiving as a national day of listening. And we're promoting that concept on the program today, continuing a tradition that we've built up. And we're encouraging you to record your family members and friends on that day after Thanksgiving. Uh, And, uh, of course, you can do a lot of things with those recordings. You can just keep them. You can, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know if you would uh, accept those at the, uh, the USU archives, Randy? You know, we do accept some. I mean, obviously... We have a collecting policy, and it's this area and the peoples and places and um, occupations and ethnicities and so forth around here. So if people feel like they have something that would fit into that, please let us know. They can contact us there at the library. And there's a lot of places you can archive things uh, today. You know, keep it yourself, uh, put it in the cloud, have it several different places so it doesn't get lost. But uh, and, and and certainly share share that among your family, and it's uh, very easy to do these days. Uh, we're talking with Randy Williams, 
who is a USU Folklife Archives curator and USU professor of anthropology, Bonnie Glass-Coffin. Uh, let's turn to you, Bonnie, with uh, this interfaith initiative. And as a part of this, you, uh, I guess, recently interviewed some students. Uh, tell me about that. That's right. We began last year, um, thanks to a USU Research Catalyst grant from the Vice President for Research Office, and um, we're continuing the interviews. We have about 45 students uh, who we have interviewed, both collecting uh, stories about their faith traditions, how they came to those traditions, what their core values are, and also asking them about you know, how uh, their experience um, interacts with their experiences in Aggie, what challenges they've felt on campus, uh, what opportunities they might like to have that don't currently exist, so that we can begin to really foster an environment where people feel safe to share all of who they are. And one of the things that we found in collecting these stories is that that was a common denominator, that everybody wanted to share who they are, everybody wanted safe spaces to do so, and we have a little bit of work to do on campus with that. So that's why we're moving forward with this project. Let's hear uh, the first part of, of this. Um, we'll hear the second part a little later in the program. But this is some uh, USU students. Um, this conversation, I guess, moderated or being interviewed by Dr. Bonnie Glasscoffin. How have you learned how to engage with people who have different religious backgrounds than you do? How do you build bridges across those religious traditions in ways that you know you can find common ground? Sure. So I've participated in many uh, interfaith discussions here in Cache Valley, and I found out that um, there are a lot of similarities among religions than far more than differences. So this is like a common ground that we can um, share and discuss with each other. I find that, uh, that there are two extremely effective ways of kind of bridging um, apparent gaps. The first one is to share values because uh, people tend to ha uh, have relatively consistent values across many faith traditions. The other one is storytelling. Um, within uh, the Buddhist tradition that I follow, uh, parables are a really big part of the whole learning and belief structure. When I share those parables with other people, normally there's something that others can associate with, and uh, that kind of breaks down the gaps and people are more willing to uh, share, be interested. I think one thing that's made a difference for me in uh learning from and interacting with students of other faith traditions is to recognize the power that a faith tradition has in somebody's life and how how closely identified that is with someone's personality and identity and what that means to them. And so as I try to seek understanding of someone's faith tradition, I'm showing them that I care about them as a whole, that I want to talk about them and understand where they're coming from as individuals. So I, I really enjoy most the discussions I have with others where I can understand them completely in, in terms of their faith tradition and their beliefs. And I think what surprises me the most is that most people here and in the U.S. in general are more open than ever before to talk about their own religion and belief. And it's that kind of conception or fear that we had before and starts from our own selves that we we, we always are afraid of asking others about their religion and their beliefs, are afraid of insulting them or 
having or talking to the people who are not very comfortable talking about their their beliefs and traditions. And I think it starts from from ourselves. If we're open to talk to others, we should also believe that others might be open to talk to talk to us. And it's it's uh, it's very it's it's very convenient to talk to people about. Uh, or asking them about their backgrounds and their beliefs and have that open dialogue and discussion. I think that will always lead to something very productive and fruitful. I think that the best way to engage with other people in their religions um, and uh, share about our own religions is in simple conversation. Um, there have been many, many opportunities that I've had to uh, discuss with people there um, very diverse religious backgrounds here on campus, be they Jewish or Buddhist or atheist or agnostic. Um, and it's been extremely enlightening for me, and um, it has also helped uh, develop my own, um, my own faith as I've been able to share my core beliefs with them. So that's part one of uh, the, the, the clip that we have. Uh, Bonnie Glass-Coffin, who is a USU anthropology professor, and is uh, behind the USU Interfaith Initiative, interviewing some uh, USU students there. Uh, so, Bonnie, the, what traditions, what faith traditions were represented there? Right. Well, we heard from five students there. Adele Abdallah, who is a Muslim, a graduate student here on campus. David Tauber, who is a practicing Buddhist and undergraduate anthropology religious studies major. Allison Fife who is a practicing member of the LDS faith and also an undergraduate and president of our USU Interfaith Initiative. Ayman Alafifi, who is a Muslim student um, from the Palestinian territories and is also the director of the Logan Islamic Center. And Bronson Roskelly, who uh, just finished his degree and who um, describes himself as an LDS Christian. Hmm. One of the uh, interviewees there used the word simple. Simple stories, simple listening. I can't remember exactly. Simple conversation. Simple conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that word can be pejorative. Mm. In other words, we're, we're um, downplaying the importance of this. Mm. You know, if, if you use that word, I don't think you use that in that, that way. Um, so on the one hand, it can be very freighted and, and, and it can seem very big. On the other hand, it's just my story. You know, who's going to want to hear Right. And yeah, I'm sure that he wasn't using it in that way, but rather in the way that, you know, sometimes we have so many preconceptions and assumptions, particularly when you're talking about religion, we have so many stereotypes and preconceptions and assumptions that we are unable to actually hear what another person tells us. And um, if we can simply converse, if we can simply listen, if we can simply come to the table, uh, without a lot of those preconceptions, we can actually um, build those bridges of communication and connection, and I'm sure that that's what he was referring mm-hmm. to. It reminds me of the story that Ibu Patel uh, uh, tells. Of course, he was a guest on this program. You brought him out uh, for your interfaith initiative, uh, interfaith leader nationally, nationally. And uh, growing up in Chicago area, I think, Yes. At the lunch table, he would sit around the table with, as he looked back on it, there was an LDS friend, there was a, he was Muslim, there was a, you know, I think Jewish friend, there was, you know, it was kind of a United Nations around the table. And yet, none of them ever addressed the elephant in the, in the room. You know, they, they didn't want to talk about religion. Exactly. And I also remember the story that he told uh, later in his visit about, you know, um, really, um, coming to understand that he had something very deep in common with a, a young friend who was Jewish because both of them went to a party and both of their mothers had sent with them in a little baggy 
all beef hot dogs because both of them had had dietary restrictions according to their religion. He was, you know, he had to eat halal food and his Jewish friend had to eat kosher food. And that's where the simple comes in again because he realized that they had that something in common that that really helped them to transcend boundaries when they found themselves both kind of hovering in the back corner of the kitchen, you know, with their little baggies waiting to ask the woman to please make them the all beef hot dogs in a way that they certainly wouldn't have had that experience if they'd met each other at a, at a Palestinian Jewish, you know, uh, checkpoint. Yeah. How do these are, are people in the, the students in the interfaith initiative, the self selecting, I guess, I guess they are. And what do you, what do you find, you know, of the, broad population, certain students, I guess, want to come together. Actually, one of the things that's been surprising for us, Tom, is that we've realized that, um, yes, of course, it is self-selecting as as um, most oral history collecting and, and qualitative research, you know, um, is about people coming to the table because they want to come to the table and then their friends talk about what they're doing and then their friends say, oh, I'd really like to participate. And it's just this kind of snowball sample that comes out. But one of the things that's been interesting for us to recognize and to, uh, to begin to understand is that maybe because religion is kind of the elephant in the room or has traditionally been the elephant in the room here at Utah State University, people have pent up need and desire to talk about these things. And it didn't really matter as we were reaching out to people, whether they were members of the majority faith or a minority of faith on campus or no faith tradition at all. Everybody that we've talked to has said, we really want to participate. And so if anything, we're having to turn people away. We are talking with Bonnie Glass Coffin, who is USU anthropology professor. She is an affiliate professor of religious studies as well, and she's uh, organized the USU Interfaith Initiative and uh, and uh, done some interviewing there. We'll hear part two of that conversation with those USU students a little later in the program. Let's turn to my other guest, Randy Williams, who is USU Folk Life Archives curator, uh, and who does a lot of work uh, interviewing and uh, collecting histories, and lately has been doing a uh, work on the Central Utah Water Project. And uh, you want to talk uh, loaded conversations and uh, <laughs> and a subject which, which can cause fights. And uh, in the West, that's water. That's right. Uh, so it, how did you come to this project? This project started with, um, I think Bonnie brought up the idea of um, things. People are talking about similar things. And I have to say this project was a beautiful um, collaborative effort. The Central Utah Water Conservancy District, who um, back in 1992 was given the the project to complete, it came out of an act of Congress, the only time that's ever happened where a water district has been given a completion of a Bureau of Reclamation project, so it's kind of a big deal. And that organization, along with the Central Utah Project Completion Act, which is another entity, a government entity that work in tandem to complete this huge water project, they realized that this is a unique thing. And there's been a lot of uh, voices, and you talked about, you know, some of the controversy. Well, there, I really um, have to say I admire these folks because they didn't shy away from anything. They didn't say, "Oh, we want you to tell the story from this perspective." They um, hired three historians, two of which are here at Utah State University: Robert Parson, Bob Parson, who I work with in Special Collections, and Ross Peterson out of the um, Department of History. And Craig Fuller, who's a social historian who just retired a year or so ago from state history, and um, they were hired, and they recognized early on that they needed the voices to tell the story completely, and they hired me to then go and do these oral histories. And in this 71 um, 
collection of histories, oral histories, are folks from the Bureau of Reclamation and these water districts, but the Ute Nation and um, environmentalists and lawyers and workers who actually got the job done. So it's a really beautiful um, tapestry. And I feel like a lot of times I use that word, a tapestry or quilt, when talking about a, a whether it's the Interfaith Initiative with the beautiful tapestries of the religious diversities that are in Bonnie's collection, with this collection or with the Latino voices or the veterans' history, all these various voices that help us understand the humanity of a period or a place and time. And I have to say, we've, we've danced around this idea of the simple. And a lot of times you'll approach somebody with the idea of interviewing them. They'll say, well, my story's not compelling. You don't need my story. And I say sometimes, that reminds me, I talked to a gentleman with the Veterans History Project who had been a prisoner of war, who escaped, who had a map in his jacket. And he said to me, oh, you don't want my story. It's not compelling. Well, obviously, we're shaking our heads, all three of us. It is very compelling. But every story is compelling. And these water stories are very compelling. What do you think that is about people? I, I, I encountered that as well. My story is not compelling. And then you talk to them, and it's very interesting. Exactly. But I'm not sure. I think maybe we're all a little bit um, defer to someone else as an expert. Mm-hmm. Somebody else knows more about it. But reality is we know more about our own life and our own situation than anyone ever will. And so we need to tell those stories so that we can understand each other a little better and um have that visceral experience with a person. None of us are probably going to have the same kinds of experiences, but we can tap into the humanity of it and realize that sounds true to something I felt before. I can comprehend that, that feeling of, I mean, that story that Bonnie shared of Dr. Patel, when he told that story, I mean, what little kid hasn't been the outsider looking in that their mother wanted them to do something just a little different than every other kid? And you're like, I've been the kid with the baggie, maybe not literally a baggie, but I've been that kid, and you tap into that, and you realize how that must have felt, and we realize we have a lot, a lot in common. We don't, mm-hmm. not everything in common, for sure, but oral histories do help um, level the playing field to help us recognize our similarities. Let's let's hear uh, one of these, uh, a portion of your interview with Irene Kutch, who's a chairperson of the Ute Tribal uh, Business Committee. Right? right, she's the former um, chairperson. Okay, and she's a. a such a fascinating woman has been involved in the Ute Nation um, with the tribal um, various different um, jobs as well as serving in political seats she's a fascinating and really well-spoken representative uh, let's let's hear this we'll talk about this uh, after this is this is uh, Randy Williams interviewing Irene Kutch my name is Irene Sespooch Kutch What's important to be known from the youth? Yeah, well, I think the important thing is, like I said, water is very precious, and it's sacred to us, too. We use it to drink, bathe, and also it's used for ceremonial purposes, you know, for dancers. They go out, bathe themselves, before they go into sun dance, which is a religious ceremony. And then after they're through, they go out, cleanse themselves, so it's, it's sacred to us, and the purposes it has for, without it, uh, we won't be able to live without water. That's the first thing people, when they've been starving, when they ask, what do you want? The first thing they ask for is water. So you know it's very precious mm-hmm. to keep our body going, to sustain our bodies, life, and for the uh, 
livestock or the wild game or birds or whatever, everybody relies on water and the value of it. But above all, if we get this water compact through, that will define the water rights held by the tribe now and forever and recognizes the tribe's sovereign water rights under the state system of water right administration. So, to use flows in a river, the ability to lease water to other water users and generate revenue for the tribe, and the ability to independently administer the use of the water, tribe's water. And that is what we believe. Thank you. So that is a brief portion of a conversation with Irene Sespuch-Kutch. By the way, if you, if you know the areas I do, uh, those are two great uh, Ute names. You hear those a lot. Uh, so Mrs. Kutch, uh, very articulate, and there, there, there's a lot you can tell about her just listening to the voice, isn't there? You know, it's interesting, and I'm sure Bonnie felt the same way. When you listen to an interview, you don't know if you're in that moment or in this moment. It's a very surreal experience being part of an interview. And um, she is a, a delightful woman and very in, inviting um, you know, there, as you said at the beginning of this conversation about water, there's a lot of controversy. And I feel like all the people who opened their doors, if you will, to let me come in and interview were opening up part of their experience to share for other people to learn, other people to understand. And so Mrs. Kutch was definitely teaching me, because I'm definitely not an expert, but teaching for a future generation. And I feel like people who take the time to do oral histories, that's a big part of why they're doing it. They recognize that it's something beyond them. And we talked about, oh, I, you know, my story's not compelling. But once people kind of move past that, they recognize that they do have something to share. And this is a really fascinating interview to look at water from perhaps, um, definitely, she talked about leasing, she talked about um, qualifying water, but also from these other kinds of purposes, um, sacred purposes, and and looking at it not just from a human standpoint, but for animals, stream flows, fowl, she talked about, livestock, and um, the sun dance, and so forth. So I think it's important, you know, whether you're interested in water or not, this interview has a lot to talk about the culture, the heritage, and the belief systems of a, per, a group of people maybe that someone might not be familiar with. And that's, I think, one of the reasons the university is so engaged in collecting and storing these. And the, those those cultural meanings behind, right. for, the, for, for, for example, the, in this case, water, uh, those can kind of get glossed over. They can get ignored. Exactly. Tell me about, you were, ta- you were talking before we went on the air about a uh, Bureau of Reclamation uh, oh, individual yes. who had an epiphany. Yes, you know, I... I have to say, I've never interviewed somebody who, um, everybody that we interview, they're so engaging and so interesting. But one gentleman, I have to say, I just, I was mesmerized. He, um, I was at the Central Utah Water Conservancy District office, and he was a longtime Bureau of Reclamation employee, had been retired, and um, he had worked also for the Central Utah um, Project Completion Act office, helping this big, huge project get, you know, moving forward to get water um, basically using Colorado River water, the Utah portion, and, and having it move over to um, the Wasatch Front and other projects in between. It's a huge project, and I'm not even scratching the surface or doing it justice. But he'd been involved in that work for many, many years. 
And we understand reclamation, you know, building a dam, getting water, moving it for municipal and industrial use or for irrigation. But he also started to see from a lens of um, a person who had listened to for long periods of time people on the Ute Nation and other, other water users as well. But he just said, I've come to understand that water has different meanings to different people. And um, it's not always about, it, it could be a sacred use. It could be um, the use or the understanding of, and view of water can be different to different people. And that's where that rub comes. And I felt like I was a student being taught by a very sage and seasoned um, teacher when I was with him in his interview. And, and of course, you always are learning things. But I just felt like he was not only telling his experience, but he was unpacking it for me. And that is something that's really unique and beautiful. A lot of times in oral history, somebody then will take the time to interpret it for you, to help you as an outsider understand something. And we, you know, we might know that with a family member. And it could just be driving along in a car. And they're telling us an experience they had. But then they'll say, and what that meant was, and they're giving us what Barry Tolkien, my major professor here at the university, used to call the texture of something. You, you can explain something to somebody, but if they're outside that cultural group or understanding, they don't really grasp the magnitude of what that thing could be. And so the texture of it, you think of something you're feeling in the texture, you recognize you've got to explain that to somebody that can't feel it. Yeah, that's certainly true. And I think, as you say, people do that naturally. They want to. Right. They want to express that. Uh, we will take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear uh, more clips. We'll hear uh, part two from the interview with uh, USU students on Interfaith. And we'll hear from a, a Mr. James Maxwell, who's a, a miner. He'll talk about uh, his experiences as part of this water project. We are talking with Bonnie Glass-Coffin, who is USU professor of anthropology and who is uh, instrumental in the USU Interfaith uh, Initiative. And we have uh, with us also uh, USU Folklife Archives curator Randy Williams. We'd love to get your story, your comment, your question at 1-800-826-1495 or to our email upraxis at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, and you can find us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 3, accepting holiday orders for chocolate Yule Logs, cranberry tea cakes, and Stalin holiday fruit bread. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto Casper, host of The Splendid Table. Be sure to join us for our annual Thanksgiving tradition, Turkey Confidential, live on Thanksgiving Day. We'll be here to take your calls, and we'll have some impressive experts standing by. It's two hours of culinary triage on the day that you need it most. That's Turkey Confidential, live on Thanksgiving Day from 8 p.m. Join us Thursday, 9 to 11, here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm joined uh, on the program today by uh, Bonnie Glass-Coffin, who is USU Professor of Anthropology. She has uh, recently interviewed uh, several students of uh, various faiths for the USU Interfaith Initiative. And uh, Randy Williams is USU Folklife Archives curator and recently completed an audio collection on the Central Utah Water Project. And we're... Uh, 
Jumping on board, StoryCorps' uh, tradition of uh, promoting the day after Thanksgiving as a national day of listening. They encourage you, and we encourage you as well, to use that today while you're together with friends and family to record stories. Just ask mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or brother or sister, whoever it happens to be, uh, to, to tell you about their life. And if you go, uh, for one example, to DIY storycore.org there are a bunch of good questions you could also uh, check out uh, USU Digital Collections uh, see some great examples of uh, the work there, much of it uh, done by uh, Randy Williams, and if you'd like to check out USU uh, Interfaith Bonnie, what's the best place to go? Well, we have a couple of different places our Facebook is USU Interfaith Initiative and um, one of the things that uh, we do on that is um, offer a lot of um, appreciative quotes and um, little bits and pieces of, of, of um, stories on, on that site. Uh, so that would be a good place to go. We're also on Twitter, at USU Interfaith. All right. Well, let's hear part two of your conversation with uh, these, I think, in this case, five USU students of various religious traditions um, talking about uh, interfaith and talking about listening, which is our subject today. Here's part two of the conversation. I think that the best way to engage with other people in their religions um, and uh, share about our own religions is in simple conversation. Um, there have been many, many opportunities that I've had to uh, discuss with people their um, very diverse religious backgrounds here on campus, be they Jewish or Buddhist or atheist or agnostic. Um, and it's been extremely enlightening for me, and um, it has also helped uh, develop my own um, my own faith as I've been able to share my core beliefs with them. For me, I think, you know, yeah, we have these differences in religion and there's so many differences, there's so many similarities, but the thing to remember is we're all human, no matter how different we are, how different we look or act. We're all human, we're all in this world together and we need to work with each other and respect each other and be open-minded. When I interact with other people about different religions, I need I understand one thing. I, I understand that religion is great. Um, and here at Utah State, there are many religions represented on campus. There are many students who have many different beliefs, and it's awesome to see the diversity here and to understand that religion makes people better. Um, each one of us here in this panel, we've, we have certain convictions that have driven us to do certain things, and it makes us better people for that. And so when I deal with other people with different religions than my own, I just realize that they're going out doing things that make them better. I go do what I believe and it makes me better. And as us better people in general, we should be able to collaborate and find um, similarities and, and work off of those. So uh, those are some Utah State University students being interviewed by uh, Dr. Bonnie Glass-Coffin. Uh, uh, this I, I read from the information, uh, two Mormons and a Native American in that, in that clip. That's right. Again, that was Bronson Waskelly, who defines himself as an LDS Christian. Alicia Olea, who is a member of the Kauia tribe, or the Kauia Nation down in Southern California. And Jeff Andrews, who is the USUSA Diversity Vice President and who describes himself as LDS. Mm. And I just wanted to give a shout out because um, these stories were originally shared um, through Lisa Hancock's um, initiative with our new students coming in 
with USU Connections and the SOAR um, program last summer in order to give students a, a sort of a taste of the fact that even though we are um, an LDS majority campus, you know, we are a welcoming campus and um, being an Aggie means you can bring your whole self to the table and that includes your religious background as well. Interesting. So this, this is something that she exposes them to or these ideas, I guess, talks yeah. to them as they come in? Well, um, we actually created this uh, this interview uh, panel. It was a panel that we did one day, and, and the first part of the panel that you, you haven't had an opportunity to, um, your, your listeners haven't had an opportunity to hear is where students actually define who they are and what their religious tradition is and what their core values are. Um, and uh, it was uh, through Lisa Hancock's initiative that we were able to actually have the space to make those interviews happen. Happen. And um, we we have that archived, and it's um, going to be part of the the archived collections that Randy's speaking about. And it's also on our Facebook page where people can actually hear the the whole interviews, which were amazing. One of the things that um, Tom has completely amazed me in listening to students, both at this panel and also in the two speed faithing panels that we've done this fall, where students come together in a panel and present their religious traditions, their spiritual traditions, or, or lack thereof, as well as their core values. It's just how articulate our students are and how um, just willing to share, open-hearted, and how amazingly articulate they are. They're amazing. Yeah, that, that certainly comes through. Uh, they're articulate, impressive uh, students. That's Bonnie Glass-Coffin, USU anthropology uh, professor involved with the USU Interfaith Initiative. Let's turn back to Randy Williams, uh, USU Folklife Archives curator. Uh, let's hear uh, the second of two clips that we have from this uh, project that you've done on the Central Utah Water uh, Project. Um, and I was before we go there, I was just thinking one of the very valuable things in recording voices is once that person passes on, you you get to hold on to that, that person. I'm thinking about a recording that uh, I don't know why my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, uh, recorded this, but he he sent us I think it was an audio letter, and I have that on CD, and it's it's that's precious, you know, just oh, to just to hear his voice, right. I think many of us have come across things like that. We have a family member, whether they're reading a story or doing an oral history or an audio letter, and how precious that is to hear their their actual voice. I have thought many times, I referenced to you that I'd interviewed a lot of family members about a a great-great-great-grandmother, and I've heard her story um, told through other people's remembrances, but I would give just anything to actually hear her tell that story in her, you know... Welsh accent. Um, I would love to, to have that in my family. Right. And really, there's no excuse nowadays, right? Ex- right. Except for not doing it. You That's know. right. <laughs> you didn't have the equipment back back in the day. Uh, let's uh, hear from Mr. James Maxwell. Tell me about him. Oh, Mr. Maxwell's a delightful man. He is, uh, nickname is Rabbit. He's a long, long time uh, miner. He resides now in Hannah, Utah. And I had the delightful um, experience of going out there with my dad, who actually knew him a little bit. And so my dad went out with me. And we had a great visit. And he talks about the the Century to Project from a miner's perspective, going in and, and with a, um, those big tunnel boring machines and the people that make some of this work happen. And one of the things that I heard many, many times is, you know, we don't recognize when we turn our tap on 
um, where water comes from and all the people who made that happen. And that's true of pretty much any effort that there's a lot of people that go into making anything big happen. But Mr. Maxwell's story is a very important part of um, this water project, getting water to move through a mountain or getting, uh, you know, putting a, a pipeline or a tunnel through something. And you have to engage seasoned and very expert miners to do that work. And that was um, interesting to visit with Mr. Maxwell about his effort over a very, very long period of time off and on with the Central Utah Project. So here's uh, James Maxwell. Mr. Maxwell, would you mind giving me your full name? Uh, James Joseph Maxwell. How do you think miners are treated? I think beautiful. I was. A lot of respect, uh, I thought, yes. Could you convey your concerns about safety? Yes, we had our safety meeting every Monday morning required by the Bureau. Who were you meeting with? The whole crew, the, the... the foreman, the walker, the shifter, and uh, uh, project managers, engineers, because they're, they're all part of the project, and this was a thing. And what are some of your memories about that time? Um, were you aware of the whole big picture of what, the, what was happening, moving the water over? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, how do you feel your part of being something that's so huge for the state of Utah as far as water and, and development of the state? At that time, it was a blessing for me because I was I had kids in school and making car payments and buying property. But the old timers that come around says, uh, "Rabbit, this is going to be the biggest mistake we've ever made taking water out of the high country. It's going to dry us up." And uh, so I was always a little confused: Are we doing good for the future or poorly? And as I look at it, I think we done good. I mean, we saved the high water. We don't have that stuff coming down the North Fork. Uh, killing people and flooding places, and we're losing all that moisture. It's contained in the tunnels, and uh, it goes to Deer Creek and starvation and all over the place. And so I think it was a plus. Uh, At the time, they were saying, boy, that's a mistake. We could irrigate our field all we wanted and kill our hay. Of course, you can't now. We're on turns and this type thing, but uh, because the water's not there anymore, it's... uh, I think they take more than the high water. They were supposed to just take high water. But us Lamanites, I call it, don't have no way of knowing, you know, goes to Strawberry and uh, South Fork, and they control it. It has probably dried us up a little bit. But uh, still, I think it's a plus. So that's James Maxwell, a miner who worked on the Central Utah uh, Project building uh, tunnels. That's interesting. He's he's a little conflicted. For him personally, it was it was a godsend. Right. Work. Exactly. On the other hand, and and growing up in Vernal, I certainly heard a lot of this sentiment. They're they're taking our water. Right. Uh, they're sucking it to the Wasatch Front. So you have the controversy, and he exactly. he was a bit conflicted. Right. And I think you know that's all of us. We have a variety of beliefs and attitudes live within each person and his interview is one of those that uh, shared that various parts of his view about what was happening from a like you say uh, a work standpoint and also as an a person who lived in that area and knew those waters well we are out of time we've uh, we've come quickly to the uh, end of our time uh, so we've been talking with Bonnie Glasscoffin USU professor of anthropology uh, thank you so much Thank you so much. And Randy Williams, who is USU Folklife Archives curator. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. And we definitely encourage you to participate in StoryCorps promoted 
the National Day of Listening, the day after Thanksgiving, two days from now. Uh, get out your iPhone or whatever it is. Very simple these days to record your family member or friends. Uh, in the meantime, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Commentator Thad Box. Thanksgiving is a very special American holiday. It honors survival through cooperation, not competition. 400 years ago, noblemen, soldiers, immigrants, indentured laborers, and slaves, some still wet from wading ashore, gave thanks for surviving the arduous trip from the old world. Those that survived the first few years did so through cooperation with others, regardless of their social position in the old country. As a child, Thanksgiving was my favorite holiday. It was not the pies and cakes and special food that made it memorable. I ran and played with cousins I'd not seen in months. Men sat in the shade of a post oak tree and talked about big catfish and slick bucks fat from acorns. Women laughed, their voices combined with clinking pan noise from the kitchen. It was a happy time. We had no money, but we were not poor on that day. Sixty years ago, Jenny cooked our first turkey in an old army barracks called Student Housing at Southwest Texas State Teachers College. We invited my family and hers. For the next half century, regardless of which continent we were on, family and friends gathered around a turkey on our table on Thanksgiving Day. Each was a special day to share with others. Each was a day to be thankful for what life had given us. Thanksgiving Day has survived for 400 years because it was a day to celebrate our journey through life. We celebrate not caring whether our good fortune came through God's grace, individual effort, or just plain old luck. We take time to reflect on how much we owe to others and to find our fit in family and community. It is time to reflect on what is left for us to do. That reflection can come to family sitting around a dining table, or sharing potluck with friends, or at a booth in Angie's eating a free dinner prepared by Sabor Sahili and his staff. This is Thad Box. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. 